What's up, guys? Can you hear me okay? You guys doing all right? I came, I came all the way here from San Diego. I brought the sunshine for you. You guys doing okay? Everything's going all right? All right, all right. So today, I'm going to kind of walk you through um, a little bit about my path, my trajectory, just to add a little bit of kind of context to the conversation. Um, and then I'm going to walk through a little bit of a history of design leadership. Um, you know, as uh, Michelle asked me to do this talk, I started doing a little bit more research into kind of those that came before us. And there's actually a really rich history of designers interacting at kind of at the executive level. So I'm going to talk through a little bit about that. Um, and then as I was doing that research, I, I came across what I found were kind of four common traits that it seemed like a lot of these historic design leaders um, kind of embodied. Um, and so that'll be like a little bit of a takeaway. Um, and then we'll do a Q&A. Does that sound cool? Cool, because I'm not going to rearrange any slides now. So that would be just great. I'm glad you agree. Um, so I, I always like to start with this. This is um, a really kind of innocent and naive statement that I made to my parents, actually, when they asked me when I was a little kid what I wanted to do when I grow up. And I said, <laughs> what I want to do is I want to draw stuff from the future. Um, and the funny thing about that statement is I still haven't really found a better way to describe what it is I do to a normal person. Um, and it is, like, in the most succinct, um, succinct, the most succinct way possible, the most uh, enjoyable part of kind of what I do. But there's a whole host of other things that go around that to make that happen, right? To enable that to be as effective as it can be, there's a lot of other things that have to happen. But um, at like a base level, it's, uh, if you look at my online presence, it's still like a lot about uh, what you see about me. It's like in a way, like one of the most tangible, immediate parts of being a designer is that we have the ability to kind of pluck an idea out of the air and put it down on a piece of paper and show it to someone else and kind of transcribe what's in our mind um, and literally kind of like transplant it into another mind. Um, and I think even with all the, the tools that exist um, and even as a, a leader with a little bit being removed from some, from some of the day-to-day -day making, this process is still really important because it's part of, one, it's a part of the thought process, but two, it's the way humans are kind of hardwired to receive information, right? Like before the spoken word, there were people drawing on walls, on caves, like communicating relatively abstract concepts um, through like a minimal use of line. And so I, I think there's something really magical to people uh, in this day of like CAD rendered images and you know 3D printed things to be able to take a thought and put it on a page. But um, like I said, it's only one part, right? It's only one part of the job. So I like to kind of break it down like this. Um, are, are any of you guys familiar with Simon Sinek's kind of three circles, the golden circle? Yeah, I mean, it's like awesome. You should watch that TED talk. If you haven't watched it, I'm about to just totally pillage it. But um, you know, like wh what I do is I try to make the most iconic, provocative products possible across every industry, because I get bored really easy. So I just try to do as many different things as possible. You know, how I do it is you know, the skills I have as a designer, right? That's kind of like the next circle in, is understanding that kind of like deep relationship to craft and to making. Um, but the most important thing, and, and I think the most important thing about becoming a design leader is getting kind of in touch with this inner circle of why I do it. And I think why I do it and why you do it, why everybody does it is, is kind of a little bit personal to them. And I think understanding that why, like what, what gets you up in the morning uh, and brings you to work um, and gets you going is a really important um, thing to understand because it will kind of sustain you, right? Like what we do is, is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And uh, I was talking to uh, Rebecca earlier in the audience. We were classmates in college at RISD. We we're coming up on our 20-year reunion, and it's just like there's a lot more years to go. And so you need to have that core philosophy inside of yourself to keep you going. 
Um, so, yeah, this is super, this is, I feel like the last guy, this is super blown out. Uh, designers always making things in grays. But, you know, I've been doing this for a little bit, a little while. I started at the Rhode Island School of Design. I spent some time studying at the Cleveland Institute of Art, as well as Domus in Milan. Um, and after school, I went to go work for a very small design consultancy uh, with an innovation bent in Connecticut called Evo, uh, where I did a ton of different, uh, ton of work for different clients as diverse as Timex, Bose, um, and also did a lot of work for Nike. And that brought me in-house at Nike where I was working in the sportswear group. And I, I'm not like a sporty guy. I don't like watch team sports and I just don't get down like that. But I just like, the, I love the brand. And my goal there was to just do like the weirdest products possible. So like, I was like, I want to do a ballet slipper that folds up and uses like, you know, a phylite and rubber compounds to make this little shoe that can go into a woman's purse so that when she's running to a train, she could slip this thing on. And I'm like, this dude's weird, but let's deal with it. Um, or like this was a shoe, um, a street version of Marion Jones track spike that I did for her to wear when she was walking around the Olympic grounds um, during the Sydney Olympics. Um, and then after a couple of years working in Nike sportswear, I went to the VP of design at Nike, John Hoke, and I was like, I want to work with Michael Jordan. And he's like, you don't play basketball, you don't care about basketball, and you've been here two years, and I should let you work with Michael Jordan? I'm like, yes, you should do that, because I want to do some weird stuff. And so I just was like, I want to make, push the boundaries as far as I can, and mix all these technologies together, and work with like, Michael Jordan, Carmelo Anthony, Derek Jeter, and just try to make the best gear I can for them. And approach it with a very um, open-minded and open-hearted um, kind of viewpoint, right? As I'm not coming at it from the perspective of a fanboy, I'm coming at it from the perspective of like, these people do something like, really unique and they do it at a certain level and they have really exacting demands and I want to find out what those parameters are and I want to make them something that's better. Um, and right about, after about three years of that, Nike purchased Converse. Uh, so they asked me to go over to Converse and initially I was design director of, they had a really small basketball team. For some reason they sponsored Dwayne Wade. Um, so I worked with Dwayne uh, and doing, trying to like reinterpret this 100 year old vintage brand in a way that could be relevant and, and have some, some legs on court. Um, and in my last role there was design director of One Star, which was um, kind of like a subgroup within Converse and had like a really broad retail footprint from everything from Target to Barney's New York. Um, and so right about that point, I had been at Nike for about seven and a half years. And I was like, this is cool. Like, I mean, this is awesome. I'm doing some, some fun stuff. But like, how many more shoes do I really need to do? Um, and then am I learning? What am I learning stuff? So um, I took a hard left turn and I talked to Frog Design about being creative director um, at Frog. And then I talked to my mentor, uh, John Hoke at Nike, and I was like, what do you think, what should I do? Should I take this job? And he, in a really big moment of what I would consider leadership, he was like, you know, Michael, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna go, you're gonna quit your job at Nike. You're gonna take that job at Frog. And if you don't like it, in two weeks you call me, you have your job back. But I'm gonna remove all the fear out of the situation and you're gonna go do that and you're gonna have fun um, because I could try to make you stay and you'll just hate me in five years and you'll leave anyway. Um, and you know, it, it's those moments as a design leader that you have a choice to create someone that is gonna be forever indebted to you or create a situation where someone's gonna be like, screw this guy. Uh, and he, he decided courageously to do the first, right? And I mean, to this day, like when he calls, I pick up the phone, like if he ever needs anything, um, this is how it goes. So uh, I went to Frog, um, this was, and I went from doing like, you know, shoes for Barney's New York to smart TV remotes um, and cell phones and lots more smartphones and too many smartphones. And sometimes they designed things that weren't smartphones, but they look a lot like smartphones. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I thought I was gonna learn this like secret to like design. I'm going to Frog. This firm was, was founded in 1969 and it's been like at the forefront of design, right? Designed the Apple Macintosh, designed the first Walkman and I, I, and 
I, I, was, I remember I was speaking of John Hook. I was having coffee with him a few months ago. And I was like, yeah, I thought I was going to learn something. And he was like, yeah, what you learned is that you don't have anything left to learn. Um, and it's true. Like Whether you're designing a piece of footwear or a bag um, or a smartphone, like there are certain parameters. As a designer, it's your job to uncover those parameters. Some of those parameters are technical. Some of those parameters are cultural. Um, some of those parameters are personal to the user. Um, and it's your job to, to bring that to life. Um, and to, to bring that to life in a way um, that is compelling, in a way that can convince the company to make something better than they thought they could make. So, you know, after a couple of years at Frog, I was like, I don't know, how many more boxes with rads do I want to design? Um, and sometimes we got to work on some things that were a little bit different. This was an automotive interior I worked on for Koros, which is a, a Chinese company. Um, and through this entire period, I also was really um, determined to keep up my freelance practice. So I always had like a small group of clients that, that I just liked working with um, that were small brands that you know, had no impact on Nike or you know, there was no way that they would ever be able to afford Frog. But um, this is a, a vehicle I worked on with Icon 4x4 uh, down in LA. And they do these handmade um, resto mods that are uh, expensive. This is like a $300,000 build. Um, but everything is like meticulously made. So like what I did on this vehicle is like redesign the whole grill. It's a whole machine stainless steel grill. The mirrors, like everything you touch, everything that would have been plastic on the original is redesigned to be machined. Um, and you know, when you work with a client like that, I've been working with them for 12 years, helping them build this kind of design language that spans all these iconic vehicles. Um, and it's, it's just wonderful when you find a collaborator that cares as much as you do, right? Like they, I know no matter what I give them, they're going to like put an insane amount of quality in it. And that's a client you, you hold on to. So after a few years of working at Frog, um, I was approached by this company, super random three-letter name company, it was DEI Holdings. Um, it's a holding company. They owned a bunch of audio brands. Uh, some of them were quite historic. They didn't quite know what to do with them. Um, but I thought that was like, exciting to me, because here's a company that has these brands that perform. They make performance products. Um, and the brands have history. They have a lot to work with. But they know like nothing about design and how to make a brand that in kind of like our terms of the word and how to create a design language and how to kind of manufacture desire. And I was like, this is great because I can add that component. So they asked me to be chief design officer. Um, initially, I was only over industrial design. So I was focusing, this is a, a collection I did for the Polk brand. Um, with my team, and so we're trying to take this 40-year-old brand uh, that had been in kind of traditional speaker space and bring it into kind of wireless speakers, desktop speakers, and headphones. Um, and in a way, that was really authentic to the brand, right? So it was founded in, in 1972 in Baltimore by three friends who were all engineering students at Johns Hopkins, and they basically liked to get high and listen to Pink Floyd. And they were like, why does my speaker not sound like a concert? And their whole vision was to recreate the concert experience through audio. And so the sound signature of these products is very warm. It's very, it's a little bit more rounded off. It's not quite as crisp. It's very kind of like mid-range forward. And it's very particular. And it has um, a really deep fan base. Like the people that love this brand love it. And so I was like, that's awesome. Like I can work with those parameters. So. Uh, we worked it to develop a design language that we thought communicated that sound, right? So instead of plastic, we're using leather, and these speakers are actually real teak, um, and creating kind of a visual that's a little bit softer, a little bit less like hardcore CE. Uh, and then we helped the brand move into the smart speaker space. So this is a collection of all Wi-Fi connected speakers that are a little bit more mainstream. They're more for like the Best Buy, like main part of the Best Buy floor, but still like working in like these kind of radius edges. There's not a lot of sharp corners 
Um, where there's metals, they're kind of like titanium or champagne finished. Just again, to give that sense of like, this product is a little bit friendlier, it's a little bit softer. Um, and then really like emphasizing this kind of like, it's super easy to use, the app's easy to use, you can control all the speakers in one screen. And then as we started digging into kind of the core products, like that kind of traditional space, again, bringing that language of like woods and, and warm metals and rounded corners to, to tell that story of this brand that started by these three guys in a garage in Baltimore hand sanding their own speakers. Conversely, one of the other brands had almost the exact opposite sonic signature where, where Polk was very uh, warm and soft Definitive, which is the more high-end audiophile brand, is very super crisp, it's sharp, it's precise, it's powerful. So we developed this language that, that emphasized those things. Um, and so in this case, like everything that looks like metal is a solid block of aluminum, and there's like, you know, the only colors are black and silver, and the only angle is a right angle, um, and it's just a totally different vibe even though it's the same product. And the cool thing is this brand also has a really hardcore fo uh, following in the audiophile community, and these guys hate Polk, and I love that. Like, they're like, Polk sucks, and the Polk guys are like, that brand sucks. And that's exactly, like, that's exactly what I wanted. And I wanted to push them further apart. So while the first couple years I was just focusing on industrial design, as, as Michelle said, I started to like, see, like, well, like, why are we like, why does our website suck? And I just want to like give me like a couple of graphic designers. Let me let me start building this kind of brand design team, and you know I want to redo the brand marks because I want the brand marks to reflect the design language as much as the um, as much as the industrial design. I want the website to you can't see any of that. It's really awesome. You should check it out. <laughs> I'm going to describe it to you now. <laughs> uh, but I want, you can see the brand mark at least, but I want the, the website and the tagline and everything to uphold the same set of design principles. Um, we started doing all the print advertising, fired the ad agency, uh, saved the company literally millions of dollars and made the print ads like way more memorable and effective at the same time. We did all the digital campaigns. Um, I convinced the CEO to let me hire a video intern and we started firing the video agencies and we built up a video team uh, so we could do the product launch videos and we added a copywriter, we added a full-time photographer so we could control all the product photography. Um, and I, I wanted to control as the chief design officer, as the title implies, every creative decision from the very first sketch all the way to the fucking sticker on the shelf at Best Buy. I didn't want any of that stuff to go forward without somebody on my team having at least touched it. Um, and I mean, it was like, it works. It's like you have to be expansive, you have to be bold, but to have that amount of control and input, it just, the brands grew exponentially. And then, and then not even stopping there. It's like, okay, well, let's like, let's redesign the office. Let's rip out all the cubicles and all the drop ceilings and let's get down to the cement floor and create the office that we want. Um, so this, is the, this was the design studio um, and we just were like, well, I want it to be like a Silicon Valley startup in the middle of San Diego. And then, you know, we're like the, the normal sit is a little bit different looking, but it still was progressive. And then creating these little oasises within the space. So it's like there's little play zones, there's little meeting zones, but it's all contiguous and there's, there's kind of soft barriers. Um, there's shelving, there's plants, but there's no, there's nowhere to like go talk smack about anybody. You have to like go off campus and go do that somewhere else because it was just, you can just, you can't do it. So after about five years of that, I was just like, all right, well, what's the next thing? You know, you start, you start getting complacent, right? You start being like, oh yeah, here's this project brief again. Here's, here's this again. Oh yeah, okay, I know what I'm doing. And for me, the, the scariest thing is when I start to feel like I know what I'm doing. Because then you, you don't have the, like, when you start to know what you're doing, you don't have the courage to ask the dumb questions. And it's only when you ask the really dumb questions that the good stuff comes, in my opinion. So um, it had been a, a few years in the making, but on, on Monday, um, last Monday, I launched my own small uh, little atelier style design studio. Uh, signed a couple clients in week one, and we're rolling. 
So I'll, I'll just play one video just to give myself a little break. This was the launch video that, that we put out last week. Should be sound. So 20 years in 30 minutes, there you go. Um, so and this was just a great moment to put together this talk as I was kind of reflecting back on my five years as a chief design officer. Um, and so Michelle asked me this question, what is design leadership? And when we talked on the phone, the image that came into my mind like immediately, like the, the key picture was, was this image. How, who's seen this picture before, anybody? See, this is Raymond Lowy in the 1930s, like a freaking boss, just like standing on a train that he designed, right? And I was like, man, that's like, that's pretty badass, right? Like that's, to me, I was just like, man, that's like, you're, he's just like, yeah, I did this. Uh, and, you know, I started digging a little bit more into Lowy. Um, the interesting thing about Lowy is he didn't start as a designer because that didn't really exist in the 1920s when he started. Uh, this was his sketch for that train in 1935. Um, he emigrated to the United States um, in the early uh, 1920s as an illustrator from France. And he was a catalog illustrator. And it was a really talented one and a really creative one. And his clients started to come to him and they'd say, Ray, like, here's the product, could you draw it? And next year they'd come and like, Ray, like, here's the product, it's not quite done, but could you just kind of like fill in the gaps and draw it? And then eventually they'd start coming to him and be like, Ray, like, we actually like, don't know what it is. Could you tell us what it is and draw that and then we'll go make that? And so he became kind of one of the, the founders of industrial design. And he really quickly got frustrated uh, because he wasn't working with the decision makers. And so he hit really early on with the only way that he could be effective is if he was working with the CEO of the company. And he just started to insist of like, I'll only do projects if I'm working with the owner, the CEO, the president, someone who has the ultimate decision-making authority because he didn't want to just design the product. He wanted to design everything. He wanted to do the branding. He wanted to do the packaging. You know, he wanted to do every aspect um, of the design and start affecting things that, that um, affecting decisions that affected the design. So this is um, the Studebaker Commander. Uh, it's know, a very iconic post-World War II vehicle, but I think more importantly than the design of it is the fact that it was the first vehicle to be put into production after World War II, and that was largely because Raymond Lowy convinced the CEO of the company that they needed to start R&D on a new model before World War II was even over. And you know, and the CEO of the company was like, why would we do that? Like, you know, the, the people are going to come back from the war. They've just gone through the Great Depression. They've gone through the war. They're going to come back. They're going to be frugal. They're going to want to, like, save their money. And Raymond Lowe is like, no, they're not going to want that at all. They just literally had the worst 15 years of their life. They're going to come back. They're going to want to do three things. They're going to want to make babies. They're going to want to buy houses. And they're going to want to put a new car in the driveway. And you need to be the first company to make a new car because everybody else is making cars that look like they're from the 30s, because there had been no development for 10 years. And so this car made Studebaker uh, tremendously successful immediately after World War II. The, one of the other things he really did was he really believed in cross-pollination. So he worked on a lot of different product types. This was furniture he did, but you could see kind of his product background being influenced where he did these kind of molded plastic um, fascias to all the drawers that were swappable. Um, and a lot of his work had a very common aesthetic. This is a line he did for Calphalon. It was very optimistic. It was very kind of like future forward. 
um, and very much like he, he wanted his products that he worked on to be kind of like what he felt was the scion of progress. You know, everything looked like it had movement. Everything looked like it was um, progressive. And, and that's because he had kind of a set of core philosophies. One of them, one of his quotes is that between two products equal in price, function, and quality, the one with the most attractive exterior will win. So these are two toasters that were on the market. You can't really see that one. It's just like a death trap. Uh, they're on the market at about the same time. And, you know, which one of these is going to sell better? The steampunk, like, hand steamer or the one that looks like it came from, like, the men of the future? Um, and his belief was that you could make something that people would just inherently want. Um, and he was very pragmatic. He was very much like a... Um, he understood what he felt his place was, uh, was to increase a company's presence, right? And so I think, you know, we could debate if that's the right viewpoint to have, but I think because of that, that gained him access to the kind of the CEO crowd that he wanted to work with, because that's the language that they spoke. Uh, but I think underneath both of those things, uh, where he had this philosophy that he boiled down into this acronym, Maya, uh, which is still a, a really relevant kind of filter to put over solutions. And MIA stands for the most advanced yet acceptable solution. And more than just coining that as like a buzz phrase, he convinced all of his clients that that was what, how they should be developing products. You should be, de de you should be deciding things, making product decisions based on is this the most advanced yet acceptable solution. And he also convinced his client that he was the key arbiter of what that most advanced yet, yet acceptable solution was. So in creating this filter or this lens for making decisions, he also set himself up as the expert to, to pass things through that lens. And I, I mean, I still want to be this guy when I grow up someday. It's just like, I, won't, I might not go down to three buttons unbuttoned, but you know, other than that, it's pretty cool. Uh, the second design leader I want to talk a little bit about is Harley Earl. So Harley Earl, another interesting character, his father was a coach builder in Hollywood um, in the 20s. And this was in the time when um, you would buy, if you were a Hollywood movie star, you would buy a Cadillac and then you would bring it to Earl's coach works and they would throw away the body and they would build you a completely custom body to go over top of that. And you know, young Harley, who was largely the design force behind his dad's little coach building shop, and it did not go unnoticed by Cadillac and a, a large regional Cadillac dealership ended up buying Harley coach works just so they could get Harley Earl and that Cadillac dealership ended up getting bought by General Motors just so they could get Harley Earl. And within a short period of time, he was vice president of design at General Motors in the 1950s when that wasn't a thing. Um, and when, when he started at General Motors, you know, cars still kind of looked like that. You know, so he was, he was starting in the late teens, early 20s, and that's a 1927 vehicle. And he wanted them to be like that. And he struggled. You know, the engineering group just like boxed him out and they just wouldn't listen to him or his team. But he, he got to know the CEO of the company, Alfred Sloan. This is Harley and Alfred. Uh, Alfred isn't short, Harley's really tall. Um, and he couldn't make engineering implement his solutions, but he realized, he's like, well, I could hire a bunch of like sculptors and I could have them start sculpting cars out of clay and I could hire like the best illustrators I could find and have them like do these full-size drawings. And so he would just walk Sloan through the studio as much as possible. And so Sloan was like, what are we gonna do with all these clay cars, Harley? And Harley's like, well, I want the budget to build five of these clay cars as rolling prototypes. And I don't want anybody from engineering involved. I'll bring in all the people from my dad's coach building practices and we'll build them. And I was like, well, what are we gonna do with the five prototypes, Harley? He's like, I'm gonna put together a traveling show it's going to go from city to city in the United States, and we'll bring the public in, and we'll, we'll see what they say about these, these prototypes. And at that, he called it the Autorama. That became the car show. Like, that still exists today. Um, and it was just his idea. The concept car was his idea. The auto show was his idea to just go around engineering 
and to get people so freaking lathered up about his vision for the future that the company would have to make it. And, and the result was an explosion in design in that industry in the 1950s, right? Like, it just like, it started like an arms race of design in the automotive industry. Um, just a little a side note about him. He was really passionate about sports cars, but at the time, there were no sports cars in the United States. Not, not any brand really made a sports car. Only European brands did. And Harley, again, having this thing of like, oh, all these like GIs are coming home from Europe. They've seen all these little MGs and things. I, I want General Motors to build a sports car. And the, the engineers wouldn't let him do it because at the time, don't forget, this is, you know, this is a, in 1951 or 1953, so it was developed in the 40s. The, the interstate highway system didn't exist, right? Roads were like largely dirt roads. And so the GM engineering test track was actually a dirt test track. So all the cars had to be approved going on this dirt test track. And Harley Earl was like, I don't give a fuck. I'll drive the first Cadillac, uh, the first Corvette prototype over the dirt test track. And that's him with the CEO <laughs> driving around the dirt test track. And I won't go too, too deep on, on the rest of these guys. This is Elliot Noyes, VP of design at IBM from um, in the 1960s. Another really interesting character in design history. Um, he was really notable for bringing in these really diverse outside designers. So he brought in like Isamu Noguchi to work on things like typewriters and also design like all the gardens for all the IBM buildings. And he brought in the Eames, Charles and Ray Eames to design IBM buildings and also to do all the promotional videos for IBM. Um, and he just was in charge of doing everything from like the design of a supercomputer to like what art, art went on the executive's walls. Uh, Elliot Noyes picked it out. And then Walter Darwin Teague, uh, another interesting early, early uh, innovator, was uh, in advertising for 18 years in the teens and 20s and started seeing the rise of design and products. And his philosophy was to embed teams with clients. So for example, um, Boeing was one of his big clients, and he put at Boeing headquarters a team of 20 people that reported to him, but lived and worked at Boeing. And to this day, uh, if you fly on a Boeing plane, it's probably designed by somebody at Teague, and that was like an 80-year client relationship. Uh, and then, of course, this is Dieter Rams. You know, so I mean, Dieter Rams wrote literally the commandments of good design. Um, he was hired by the Braun brothers to be an interior architect for their offices and again within six, seven years was VP of design and bef before he left Braun, he was actually on the board of directors for the company. And so to me, I, I think that's a really important trajectory just to understand that he's a designer, right? But he could be on the board of directors for the entire company. Uh, and that's typically a position held by a bunch of financially minded people, but why not have a creative person in that position? Why wouldn't you have someone who actually has creative problem solving skills on your board of directors and not just somebody who only looks at things through the lens of a spreadsheet? So with that, after looking kind of at all these histories and, and of course you, know, you think about like kind of who you consider your modern design leaders, I started thinking about well, like, what are some common traits that all these people have in common? So the, the first one, I think, is expansive thinking. So each of these people have kind of have a deep expertise in a particular area, but they didn't let that stop them from influencing other things, right? Whether it's like Raymond Lowy being like, no, I can't just design the product. I need to design the logo and uh, the packaging and everything that goes with it. Or Harley Earl, like engineers who don't want to make my thing, fine, I'm going to make concept cars, I'm going to make a traveling exhibition. Um, or, um, you know, Elliot Noyes, like I'm going to have Isamu Noguchi design the gardens to our building. Like they were just, they never stopped at what their discipline was or what their task was. That was actually kind of like somewhat meaningless to them. They felt that they were a creative force within an organization and it was their job to spread that as wide as possible. The second trait is dissatisfaction with the status quo. And I always tell this to my teams. I think 
literally the most important attribute of a designer is dissatisfaction. Like, if you're not dissatisfied, why would you make anything? Why would you try to make anything better if you are not dissatisfied with it? Um, and I think that this is particularly true of a leader. I think like the worst thing a leader could ever hear is the phrase, we don't do it that way. Um, and I think it's the job of a, of a leader to, to get out in front of his or her team with a sledgehammer and smash on the, on the Berlin Wall because like somebody's got to do it. Um, and that, dis that dissatisfaction can't just be bitterness. That dissatisfaction has to turn into action. Um, and you have to be willing to ruffle some feathers and break some things so that you can show people what the opportunity can be. And I think you know, all four of those leaders certainly had those, that attribute of like, nah, I'm gonna get in there and fuck some shit up, you know? I think the third trait is to always have a teacher's disposition. I can't really make a presentation without getting a stormtrooper slide in there, so it had to happen. Um, but I think that there's, there's tons of opportunities in your day and I think, by the way, all these, these, these attributes apply whether you're a design leader or a junior designer at your company. You have the ability to implement these attributes. And, and none more so than this. I mean, if you're, if you're in the hallway with the janitor, that's like a moment to teach somebody about design. If you're in a meeting with a marketing person and they say something that makes you want to face palm so hard that you want to like fall out of your chair, that's okay. Like That's a moment that you could teach somebody about what design can do. And you can't let those moments go, because those moments happen, like, I guarantee you, you find five of those moments every day in your job. Um, and it could be frustrating, and you have to put that frustration aside and take a deep breath and be like, all right, I'm gonna like dig in here, and I'm gonna lean forward, and I'm gonna help this person understand my point of view, and I'm gonna try to understand their point of view so that I can be better at doing my job as well. Um, and I, I think for literally the, last, the first two years as chief design officer, I called myself the chief design educator because people just didn't know. You know there was no in-house design at the company for 40 years, um, not, certainly not in a leadership position. And so it wasn't that people were trying to make me less effective. It was just they just didn't know. Um, and so taking the time to go to lunch, to go to coffee, to get beers and get more beers until and to not leave the bar until the person understood um, and you understood their their side. I think it's just it's important to take that. The last trait is to manage up as well as down. I think there's a lot of pressure on leaders from above to not be leaders, to be managers, and to only focus on you know, what can they get out of their team? You know, what can, I, what can you make your, how fast can you make your team go? You know, how lean can you keep your team? And those things are fine, you know, that's good, but it's also your job to manage up. And it's your job to push your boss. You know, I always like, my, when I would present something to a C, the CEO or when I present something to the client, and they say like, wow, this makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I'm like, awesome, that's what you're paying me for. You're paying me to make you feel uncomfortable. In fact, if I present something to you that makes you feel comfortable, I didn't do my job, because that means you probably already saw it from the competition. And so it's our job to manage lead leaders above us through that difficult um, process of product development, brand development, um, through like the awkward teenage years of, of making a new product where you get the first prototype and you're like, that thing is just messed up, but that's okay, we're getting somewhere, and that's where it should be right now. Um, and to also take opportunities, right? If, if there's an opportunity, if marketing is presenting something to the CEO, to just like step in there and be like, no, I'll present it. If the CEO is presenting something to the board, be like, you know what, I'll help you. Can I make the deck? Can I present the deck? Uh, and just to get the FaceTime so that people realize where this thing came from. Um, and so that you're in the room, because at some point in that room, there'll be a decision point, and there'll be a moment where the product can be all it can be, or it could be less than it can be, and you at least want to be in that room, right? You, you won't always win, and most of the times you won't win, but at least you'll know that you did everything you did, you could possibly do. So four traits, expansive thinking, dissatisfaction with the status quo, 
a teacher's disposition and to manage up as well as down. And I think for me, digging through all those historical examples was really important to put this together, not only to get to these kind of like four little traits or whatever you want to call them. I think for me, the most important thing was to understand like design leadership is not something new. I know it's like, oh, every fast company and ink article is like, oh, the rise of design leaders, as if like we just popped out of like nowhere yesterday. But these people were design leaders in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s. And I think as a discipline, it's not only our, our right, but as a designer, it's your duty to try to be in that room and to try to lead a team forward and to push the discipline further. Right, because it's our job to kind of like raise the water level for the people that come after us, just like those people did to get us here. Um, and it, it's it won't always be comfortable, you know. You'll walk the line up to getting fired. I, I do that once a year. It's kind of like a goal, apparently. <laughs> I say it's a goal. It just kind of happens. But um, and I think that that's okay, right? It's it's our job to be. Um, the voice of the user. It's our job to be the voice of culture, um, because if we don't step up and represent those things, probably nobody else in the room will. There'll be plenty of people who, who will be in the room who will talk about um, the financial health of the company. There'll be people there to talk about the feasibility of bringing this to market at this price in this timeline. And yes, we need to understand those things and be a part of those conversations as well, but we also need to make those other disciplines understand our point of view, because if you're a fiscally healthy company and you make something at the right price on the right timeline, but it's the wrong thing and it doesn't sell, you might as well not have come into work that year, right? So it's our job to help do that. And that, that's why I think design leadership is so important. So let's do, let's do some questions. You can also get at me socially. Lots of ways. Um, was that good? Did I did I miss anything? What did you What did you not hear that you want to hear? Do we have questions for Michael? Where's that guy that asked all the annoying questions last time? <laughs> so when you were at Nike, you had mentioned that. Um, you had talked to your boss about uh, working with Michael Jordan. And uh, I know there's a lot of people here that probably would be interested in knowing how that conversation happened and, and how exactly you got to just launch yourself into that project. I, I might have simplified it a little <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for time. But we, since you asked, I can expand on it now. Um, so I had been there for a couple of years, and I was working on a category within sportswear called the uh, women's metro. So it was predominantly like, um, it was all women's product, predominantly, you know, 100 $150 and up, mainly for European and Asian markets. Um, and then a few, a few key retailers in the US, like Fred Siegel or Barney's. And I, I was there a couple years, and I was having like a little bit of an existential moment of like, you know, this place is so big. At the time, there was 350 designers at Nike. Now there's 1,000. Um, and so, you know, I started having this, like, bad, bad thoughts of, like, if I didn't come to work this week, would it make a difference? If I didn't come to work this month, would it make a difference? And then so I started thinking, like, okay, well, what do I want to do? Like, what do I want to get out of this? And I was like, I want to work, work with Michael Jordan. So I want to do that. Like, that's, like, a cool thing to do. Um, and so I talked to the VP of design, and I was like, okay, this is what I want to do next. And he's like, this the, and he's like, to, to me, that's the exact opposite of what you're doing now, like women's European product to like, you know, US-based bas high-performance basketball shoes. And I was like, yeah, that's like the cool thing about it. It's the total opposite. And he was very supportive. He was like, all right, well, go talk to the design director for Jordan. Um, who was uh, Dwayne Edwards. I don't know if any of you know him. He started a, actually a footwear design school here in Portland called Pencil, um, which is really a super cool concept, another story. And so I, I went and had you know, lunch with Dwayne and you know, convinced him that I wasn't just some nut job and that I was gonna do a good job. And you know, Dwayne said, okay, well, 
if you really want to do this, then you'll do a side project for me. And I was like, yeah, for sure. So he gave me a brief. Um, you know, I would work at like my job doing shoes all day, and then I would go home and I'd work on the side project for Jordan. And you know, once a week I met with Dwayne to show him what I was working on. He would you know, try to give me like the hardest feedback possible to see how I would take it. And I'd just keep working on it. And it got to the point where he was like, this project I think is gonna go somewhere. So you should present it to Mark Parker, who is the CEO. And so every, every quarter, basically, at, he wasn't the CEO then, it was the president. Every quarter, designers present work to the president of the company uh, in this kind of massive three-day event called Concept Debut. Um, and so I presented my sportswear work on like day one of Concept Debut. And on day two of Concept Debut, I came in and presented my side project during the Jordan portion. And Mark Parker and Eric Spronk were like, Michael, what are you doing here? You don't work for Jordan. I'm like, yeah, I know. I did a whole other project for Jordan. And um, they loved it. And Dwayne was like, you got the job. So it's just like, you know, you got to do it. If you, if you say you want to do something, you got to do it. On the flip side, um, I remember I had a designer that worked for me who, I won't say who he is, he's a good guy, but uh, he wanted to do some bags in, when I was in one of the groups I was in. He knew when I was in Jordan, uh, I did a lot of, I did footwear, but I also, you know, I, I tried to work expansively. I did bags, I did branding, I worked on like apparel details, like little things, like if the apparel designers need help on like a zipper pull or whatever, I'm like, cool, I'll help out. So he was like, I want to do some bags. Um, and when I was in my first director role at Converse, and I was like, cool, I want you to do some bags too. Why don't you come back at me in like a week with a bunch of concepts? And then, you know, I know the head of apparel, and I'll, I'll broker an introduction. And, you know, a week went by, I didn't hear anything from him. Okay, well, I was like, I'm not going to set up the meeting. It's on him. A couple of months later, Michael, I, I told you I want to do some bags. I'm like, yeah, dude, I remember you told me that. And remember, I said, draw some bags, show me what you got in terms of ideas so I can make sure I'm not like wasting this dude's time and I will set you up. And a couple months go by, nothing. And he gets me, Michael, I wanna do some bags. I'm like, dude, okay, here's the thing. If you ask me this one more time, you're fired. Like the next time you ask me about this, you better come with like a ream of concepts or you're, I will fire you from your day job. Uh, and if not, if you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. Just never bring it up again. And the choice is yours. Like, I will be more than happy to go to bat for you and help you do this. I will even give you time in your day to do it. Um, but I can't introduce you to the head of apparel and say, this dude just wants to do bags, having never, not having nothing. And uh, he just never brought it up ever again. So it was that. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's what you make it. Now I'm getting my steps. What's more important to you? Accreditation uh, from fellow designers saying you're doing a fantastic job or that sales curve? So um, I'm going to go option C. Uh, and, and so it's, it's definitely not like, you know, winning design awards is nice, but like I've, uh, I've judged some design awards. And let me tell you, like, there's a lot of chance in winning a design award. Uh, it's not as like scientific as you might think. And it's just kind of like, yeah, it's nice, but what does it really mean? And, you know, selling a lot of things is nice too. I mean, when I had one shoe in Jordan, I think it sold 300,000 pairs in a quarter. And you're like, man, that's a, like, you start adding that up. Like, man, a company made a lot of money on that. Um, and that's nice. But uh, I think for me, it's always been when I've seen somebody in public, like using it. And I remember once I was in San Francisco, I was on the BART train heading from San Francisco to Berkeley to have brunch with some friends and my wife. And I'm just kind of like doing this. And my wife is like, what is wrong with you? You're like looking around like you're cracked out right now. And I was like, there are four dudes on this train car wearing shoes I designed right now. And that was freaking awesome, right? Like out of anything in the world, they picked that. I, I remember once I went to uh, my mechanic and to drop off my car, for some service, and the mechanic was wearing a watch I designed. I was like, my, my, and again, my wife's like, he's wearing a watch you designed. You should tell him, like, it doesn't like 
telling him that is not the cool thing. Just knowing that he, that's like a weird, that's nerdy, but just knowing that he has that watch or his wife bought him that watch or something, his kids bought, like that's cool, right? And, and whenever I see, I was on an airplane and I saw a, a woman wearing headphones I worked on and I'm like, God, that's the like, that's the stuff for me. Like that's why I do it, right? Is for someone to use it and enjoy it and hopefully like keep it. Um, that, that gray and green shoe that was in the video, the Jordan T4G, it was, by Jordan, Jordan standards, a total failure. It sold 70,000 units in a quarter, which is bad <laughs> there. Um, and like three years later, I saw a dude wearing a pair of those on the streets in Boston. And I'm like, that dude kept those shoes for three years, and he's still wearing them. And I'm like, that's cool. So th that's a win to me, you know. Ah, so that's a good question. Um, I'm kind of like a nerd. I'm like, I just always like, I love designing. Um, and so I'm always just kind of like taking things in. I'm kind of an observer. Uh, I go to a lot of art shows. My wife's an artist. Um, so I'm just always going to museums and I try to travel to go see art and, and architecture a lot um, this June. Um, June 8th, I'm going out to Wisconsin to go to Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin on Frank Lloyd Wright's birthday, which is June 8th. It's also my birthday. I want to be there. <laughs> birthday, because I'm a nerd. Uh, <laughs> and then we'll go to Milwaukee to go to the Calatrava designed uh, Milwaukee Museum of Art. Because I'm like, I just want to see that building. Um, and you got to invest in that, right? Like, you got to do things that, that give back. And, um, I remember when I was in college, actually when I was in uh, studying in Milan, um, one of my professors told me, he's like, you know, Michael, everything you do like comes from your heart, and that's great, but eventually, if you pull enough things out of your heart, you're just gonna have nothing left. And you're just gonna give all of yourself, and you're gonna be empty, and you gotta put stuff back in. And I was great, I, like, I, mean, I heard that when I was like 18, and like, I still think about that. Um, I go to a lot of concerts. Um, I'm like, I feel like I'm really careful about how I spend my dollars. Like I wanna like, I expect people to spend their dollars on things that I designed, which tend to be of what I feel is better value and a better function for them, but also typically more expensive. And so I try to do the same, whether that's like going out to a nice meal or going to see a concert or supporting an artist by buying a piece at a show. Um, and so, you know, I try to live that kind of like authentic um, life, right? Where I'm like trying to live up to the expectations I put on others. Um, I watch a lot of Chef's Table. The show's awesome, the show's so good. Um, I watch that show and I'm always like, I need to go make something. Um, and then I try to set about regular challenges for myself because, you know, as a, as a leader, and, and that's, and part of like doing my own thing is about that too. As a leader, you can get a little bit disconnected from the work. And I never wanted to be one of those leaders that was like, hey kid, like give me 10 sketches by the end of the day. And you're like, that asshole, like he doesn't know what it takes. And so, you know, I always was like, hey, let's do a collaborative session. Like let's all work on this together and let's get out in front. Um, so like this year I set a challenge for myself where every day, for the entire year, I was gonna try to post a sketch on Instagram of something. Um, and it's like a simple challenge, and it was freaking hard, like I'm failing a little bit. I'm like eight sketches behind, but it's still not bad. I'm like, it's like 100, I'm up to like 115 or something. Um, so every day on Instagram, I, I put one up there, and if I don't put one up there, it's like somebody, I think I'm up to like 30,000 followers, like somebody's gonna say something, like, dude, where's your sketch today? What the fuck? And so, uh, like giving yourself those little like, um, challenges can be so helpful. Um, and just like, you know, I'm just like, I'm like an Instagram addict. And I was like trolling through Instagram and I found this like Japanese knife maker. And I'm like, wow, I like this guy's stuff. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy lives in the same town as me. It turns out he lives up the road. I'm like, hey, let's get coffee. And so we get coffee. And I'm like, hey, let's, I want to design a knife. How about I design a knife for free? You make, you give me the knife for free. And he's like, all right, cool. Because it's like $800 knife. Um, <laughs> And so I'm like, hey, that's like another challenge, right? And it's just like, I don't know, just putting stuff out there. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I try, I guess, 
to sum up this rambling answer, uh, I just try to never turn it off. You know, and just like be a little bit on and open all the time and observing. Because people are the biggest inspiration. You see somebody misuse something out in the wild and you get inspired. I mean, that little fold-up ballet slipper, I'm gonna go a little bit more. Uh, the fold-up ballet slipper, that came from, I, I was out in London because um, I was working on the, Euro, the women's metro stuff and sales were down in, in England and France. And so it was like my first couple of months at Nike and my boss was like, sales are down in France, go, go there and figure it out. I'm like, oh, okay, so like an ethnographic trip, what did I do? He's like, I'm gonna hook you up with like regional rep. She's gonna take you everywhere that like a 25 year old cool French girl will hang out. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, do I, like, like, do I have to like write like a report? He's like, no, you don't write a report. You come home, you design the shoes, the shoes sell, that's the report. I'm like, uh, okay, I was going to go do this. So I flew to London, hung out in London for a couple of days, and then, you know, took the train through the tunnel, and um, kind of like, I'm up on, and I'm on a train early. I'm an early person for everything. I'm just sitting there on the train, like, doodling in my sketchbook, and I see this woman, like, running for the train, and with, like, a little overnight bag, and her purse, and, like, high heels, and I'm like, oh, my God, this poor lady, is not, like, that looks, like, terrible. And so I drew the little ballet slipper that folded up. And I'm like, oh, I want to make her um, this little shoe that, um, that could, she could carry in her purse and wouldn't take up room and fit in a little carry bag. And it like sold amazingly well in those markets. And uh, it was so weird when I moved to Boston, I was moving in and this um, girl who lived upstairs was holding the door open in my building and she was wearing that ballet slipper. And in the think of that moment, and that like blew me away because it was never sold in the United States. And, um, I, and I, I, that was one time where I did tell, I was like, I just gotta ask you, where did you get those shoes? And she's like, oh, I got them on a trip to London <laughs> because they fold up and could fit in my purse. And I was like, oh, that's fucking awesome. I'm like, how cool is that? <laughs> like, you know, I did tell her that I designed those. So, <laughs> so, so Michael, two part question. Yeah. And you kind of teed it up a little bit by talking about your Instagram account. So. I know designers sometimes question, what do I put out there on Instagram? What do I do for social media? Is it worth the lift, okay? Yeah. And then two, did that have an impact on your choice to go out on your own then? Did that reach have an impact? So A, advice to people about posting online yeah. as designers, and B, did it have an impact? Yeah, so, you know, I talk to people about this all the time. And uh, obviously, like, I'm not super shy, and I'm kind of a giver. I'm like, I just put stuff out there. I don't care. And, and there's, you know, there's some jerks on there. They'll be like, that sucks. I'm like, I'm delete your comment. I don't care. <laughs> it's gone now. Um, but uh, I, I think that for me, it was just like a fun way to get, like, feedback. And you're like, oh, here's something. And it got 500 likes. And here's something that's kind of similar, but only got five likes. I wonder why. And, like, you start thinking about, like, the psychology of people. Um, and it kind of became like a little bit of a video game. Of like, wow, I wonder like, like, whoa, is it these colors, is it this? And, and just playing with that and getting that kind of like, that instant feedback every day of what's working. And then, you know, I started to actually realize like what was working and I'm like, well, I don't actually like doing that stuff and I'm gonna move off and the likes dropped off and I'm like, screw it, I'm gonna keep doing this thing until like those likes pick up, until I like force people to like it. <laughs> um, and, um, and so it's just fun to play with. Uh, and I, I think exposing yourself to criticism is always a good thing. Um, and sometimes I get really constructive criticism of like, hey, if you change the perspective on this a little, I'm like, oh, that was cool, thank you. Um, and I, I think I, I did, I have been planning this moment for about five years for going out on my own. So. Five years ago when I took that job at Sound United, I told myself in five years I'll go out on my own because um, I'll be 40 and I don't want to do it by the time I'm 40 and then I hit 40 and in a few months I'm gonna be 41 so I'm like, I gotta do it now before I break the promise to myself. But I kind of started building up this following because I'm like, well, it'll be, it'll be, you know, I think important to, for people to know who I am a little bit. And I started speaking and the Instagram following grows and like the things become somewhat cyclical, like it becomes a exponential kind of a building thing. Um, and you just get 
more and more used to it, and it becomes more and more fun. And in the back of my sketchbook, I had like <clears throat> the list of like my snappy design firm names. I'm like, oh, what's my snappy design firm name gonna be? And it was you know my wife actually who was like, just like name it after yourself, dummy, because you're the one that everybody follows on Instagram. You're the one that people invite to do a keynote, and don't don't let it be this weird word. And then people are like, what's that? Oh, it's Michael. Um, so as usual, she was right. We did that, and we had a great launch. And I think for me, I just kind of like ran out of reasons not to do it. You know, ever, ever since I I was in school, I always kind of wanted to do this. And at some point, you know, there's just no more excuses that you could tell yourself. And like, yeah, sure, like what's the worst that could happen? I could go bankrupt and lose my house. But you know, you have to have faith in yourself, right? You have to invest in yourself. And um, yeah, it just felt like the right time. It felt good. It was funny, I, you know, like I said, in, in week one, I had two clients sign on. One, on. one on Monday, we did a kickoff. They signed a contract, gave me the deposit. And then on Wednesday, we had a second kickoff, um, signed a contract, gave me the deposit. And the Wednesday guys were like, they handed me the check like this, and they're like, we are so happy to be your first client. I was like, oh, you guys are number two. <laughs> like, they're like, it's Wednesday. I'm like, wow, I was busy on Monday, you know? <laughs> Um, thank you, Michael, for an excellent presentation. Um, I was wondering, like, you have such a broad expanse of experience, and um, have you come across any kind of magic formula for defining what the return of investment as it pertains to design is? Um, it always seems like it's a challenge for anywhere from a small firm to even a large company to really define. They always go to sales numbers or something, but do you have a little trick up your sleeve that works well for, for that? Um, well, I don't know if it's a trick, but it's a spiel. <laughs> um, and, and it's the talk, right? It's the talk I have with whoever the decision maker is. Because at the end of the day, like, I can't take all the risk out of it for them, right? Like, in, in fact, I'm trying to create something that is going to create risk for them. And with that risk of failure is also a risk of success. Like, yeah, you can do what you're doing and maybe if you like really try hard and you optimize the crap out of your org and you push your sales team, maybe you're gonna get a 3% lift. And, and do you really wanna do that? Or do you wanna put an equal amount of energy into creating something that could create a 15, 20, 25% lift? Is that, is that what you'd rather do? And yeah, it could also be bomb. But you, you have to take a portfolio-based approach and say like, hey, okay, we're gonna launch 15 new products this year. In that product portfolio that we're gonna launch this year, there's room for two wild cards. And we're gonna invest in those two wild cards, and we're gonna make sure that we're gonna reach our financial targets with the other 13 products. But these two wild cards, while they might be duds, they might also make our brand. And for a lot of brands that are of a medium size, like the last company I worked for, it was a medium sized company. It was like, big enough to like sell stuff in Best Buy and have like really big brands like Denon and Marantz. But they're not Samsung, right? They don't have a like nuclear arsenal level marketing budget. And so really the biggest piece of marketing that the, pro that the company was ever gonna do the whole year was the product. Like the product being in the store is their biggest marketing campaign. And so if you start thinking about the product in a different way, like that product has to literally attract me from across the room. Because I'm in Best Buy and it's a room, it's big, it's like three times as big as this, right? And there's like five bajillion other products all shouting at me. And that thing's gotta stand out. And I, it's gotta draw me in, it's gotta attract me. And once, once it's attracted me, it's gotta engage me. Like I'm here, okay, well now let me start like getting up on it more. And there's things I didn't notice about it. And once it's engaged me, it's gotta capture me. So it's gotta have these magic moments of like, wow, that works better than I thought it would work, or that solves a problem I hadn't thought about, or I bought it and I brought it home and it's well, it's easier to set up than I thought it was gonna be, or it does this, oh my God, it vents over here, that's really cool, I didn't even think about that. Now I'm gonna go back to that brand and buy something else because they delighted me, they surprised me, they, they solved my problems in ways that I didn't think about, and so, you know, my spiel to the decision maker is like, don't you want to do that? 
like what what's getting you out of bed every morning? Is it to come in and check these spreadsheets, or is it to like actually move people? And you know, if it's to actually move people, then I want to play in that sandbox with you. You know, I want to do that. I want to help you with that. And if it's just to check in on the numbers once a week, like I'm probably not the best guy to, to work with you on it, and that's okay too. You know, um, and so no, knowing when it's the wrong client or the wrong company to work for anymore is just as important. Um, and it's okay. Like I don't. To me, it's not like it's not personal. This is business, and like our paths might align, uh, and they might align for a long time, and then our goals might diverge a little bit, and that's okay because. I can go off and do something else, and you can go hire somebody else, and that, that's okay too. Um, and so, you know, I give them the talk, and if the talk doesn't like bolster them into taking a risk, then I, I try to, to find somebody else that, that will. Because, I mean, we, all of us have limited time, right? In our day, in our life, in our career, and you gotta spend that time doing the work you wanna do. Um, have you ever seen the, the documentary, The Sketches of Frank Gehry? It's a great, great little documentary. Check it out. Uh, it came out like maybe 15 years ago, and um, that's funny. Yeah, Frank, I mean Frank Gehry is a, is a provocative figure in architecture. He makes some really amazing, polarizing pieces, um, but he didn't always do that. He also made a lot of like really just conservative buildings when he first started out. And when every once in a while he would find a client that would let him be Frank Gehry, right? And so one of his clients who let him be Frank Gehry, he was like, Frank, why do you make this other garbage? Like, what are you doing that for? He's like, well, the clients want that. And he's like, well, yeah, just stop working for them. And he said it was like a light bulb moment for him. He was like, oh, right. I could just turn those projects down and focus all of my energy on getting the, the people that will let me be me and let me push boundaries, and I'm gonna go do that. Thanks, guys.